In the 1970s, people on the streets of New York City began disappearing without a trace. But it wasn't a serial killer on the loose. It was a mob crew, sanctioned for murder by the New York Mafia and led by gangster Roy DeMeo. What Henry Ford was to the automobile industry, Roy was to murder. Uh, he streamlined it, he organized it, and he killed with efficiency. He had no respect for human life. He had no respect for anybody. In their time working for the mob, the DeMeo crew is said to have killed almost 200 people. But if they stepped out of line in the mafia, they could be killed just as easily. People would be killed because they happened to accompany a target of the crew. Andre got pinched for narcotics. And they were afraid, like everything else, was uh, he would rat out to the police rather than take a, a, a chance of getting uh, convicted of narcotics possession on it. Uh, the order came down was to kill Andre Katz. Roy DeMeo rose from a money-laundering cash grabber and car thief into creating a smooth-operating mafia murder machine. But what happened when some of the cogs in that machine started to rust? This is Mafia. Roy DeMeo was raised in Bath Beach in South Brooklyn. He grew up in a poor household, but his uncles were successful. One was a prosecutor. The second was a forensic scientist. DeMeo also wanted to be successful. A successful mobster. DeMeo started as a butcher's apprentice, but from a young age, he was running his own illegal business. He loaned out money to local kids and beat them if they couldn't pay back the high interest. By the late 1960s, it had started to become a sophisticated operation, and it had caught the attention of the mob. One day, he received a call for a meeting with a man named Anthony Nino Gaggi. Gaggi was a mafia captain in the infamous Gambino crime family. At the time, the family was headed by notorious crime boss Paul Castellano. For DeMeo, it was the first step on the path to becoming a made man, officially part of the mafia. Joe Wendling is a former NYPD officer who specialized in the mob. You got made and you became a made man. And they actually had a ceremony. And then after the ceremony, you had a party. It was a big deal to get made. And well, in a crime family, nobody could kill you. Nobody could try to take over your area, your bookmaking, your loan sharking, your prostitution, unless they had permission from the commission. And this would be, if you, if you were a producer and you were doing right, they wouldn't kill you. Gadji placed DeMeo on the first rung of the mafia ladder. He was made an associate, working in partnership with Gadji on various schemes to increase each other's wealth. They had a good partnership. Their business ventures had the same interests. Walter Mack was the prosecutor who worked on building the DeMeo case. I think in many ways where Mr. Gaggi was, was a gentleman, very much of the old school, very close to Paul Castellano, uh, Roy was the, the person who got things done on the street. He was the earner. He was the one that was involved in the business 
and was the one to see that if there was any risk that business, he could roll his sleeves up and do what was necessary to protect the family. So I think uh, often those relationships are similar to that. There are people who are earners, who uh, basically work on the streets, you know, have people working for them. With Gadji's connections, DeMeo expanded his loan sharking book. And soon, Roy DeMeo was doing what any mafia boss wants. He was making lots and lots of money. His criminal enterprise came to an extraordinary peak in 1972. With his financial expertise, he somehow became elected onto the board of directors of a small local bank, the Brooklyn Credit Union. As in any credit corporation, legitimate people come to do to establish loans. Uh, originally, Roy got involved on the orders of Nino to help launder money, to help put money out there, and to, uh, to account for his, their money. So what had happened is uh, Roy moved into it, organized it, but then took it a step further. Said, well, if we're not only going to lend money to legitimate people, I mean, he, he did dentists, doctors, lawyers, firemen. He said, we're going to do bad people. And the bad people are going to pay us because we'll kill them if they don't. And that way, Nicky Barnes could go down there if he's looking to have the big order of uh, narcotics come in. Sure. Instead of him scrabbling around to his people to get money, he'll get the money from Roy. DeMeo began to embezzle money from the bank. Not only was he stealing from the bank's savings, but he convinced the other directors to do the same. Basically, there are many people out there that need money, and banks were not, not that readily give them the money because they had no financial backing by themselves. Organized crime would come in. Banking wasn't the only industry that was being ruled by the criminal underworld. This was a fairly common practice, at least in New York. And organized crime was heavily involved in the garment industry. Uh, when the, uh, a designer came up with a new line, and he needed money to produce that new line for via advertisement, have a, uh, a showing, uh, he needed money. And not often those banks would go behind and give him the money. Organized crime would, and they would give him that money. Of course, he would pay an exuberant uh, I guess, interest on the money, almost uh, 25 to 26%. And basically, that's what they did, and they just expanded that. Borrowing from the mob was often a last resort for people that couldn't borrow from banks. Borrowers were expected to pay back the loans plus interest, called the VIG, in a timely manner. Or there would be trouble. The VIG is the interest on the money. You're paying the VIG first. And if you, let's say, if you miss that VIG, then no big deal doubles. You're digging that hole deeper. So what it happens is if you go through tough times and you know they only allow you so many times to miss paying that interest before you get a physical warning. And virtually, when you get involved in that and you have any kind of a hard time paying, the interest alone, when that keeps doubling, will just keep you in, in, in the grips of the mafia. They have found ways of insuring their money is many of them make you take out a life insurance policy for the total amount. Now, it does become profitable to kill you. They don't have to break your legs and break your arms. If you don't pay it, they'll allow so many times, you'll become threatened, then you'll be killed. And they get their money anyway. 
With DeMeo and the other directors slowly siphoning money away from the bank, it wasn't long before the bank foreclosed. But by then, it had netted him and Gadji hundreds of thousands of dollars. To help him enforce his deals, DeMeo also built around him his own specialist team of criminals. The gang became known as the DeMeo Crew. DeMeo chose his friend Chris Harvey Rosenberg to be his right-hand man. Chris was a 24-year-old with a vicious temper. He idolized Roy DeMeo and was desperate to be in the mob. Chris Harvey Rosenberg thought he was going to be uh, a made man, and this would never happen. The crew were mostly Rosenberg's friends. Okay, we knew, we knew Chris Harvey, we knew Joey Testa, we knew Patty Testa, we knew Henry Borelli, Freddie Denome. Freddie was a racing car driver and was highly respected as a car thief. He could get away with any kind of uh, a police chase. But they were united in their admiration of DeMeo. They looked at him as a father image. And as he moved up the line, he'd be able to move them up the line, at least those of, of Italian heritage. Uh, Roy was a father figure, a mentor, and uh, their boss. And soon they became a fully operational gang that was to be feared. The gang used to hang out at a bar at Flatlands Avenue in Brooklyn called the Gemini Lounge. The lounge was their base of operations. Gemini Lounge was a, a bar, a neighborhood bar, a neighborhood watering hole. Wasn't a disco, it was a very quiet bar uh, where a man coming home from work could go in for a drink. The only exception to it was the fact that it was owned by Roy DeMeo. The DeMeo gang's expertise was mostly in selling stolen vehicles. Freddie DeNome was a fast driver, and the streets of New York were already rampant with car theft. Oh, it was a tremendous epidemic of uh, car crimes in New York. Uh, and there was a tremendous slew of warehouses found with skeletons of cars in it, because there were certain parts that nobody could take. And that was the frame because it was numbered and the engine. They also employed a number of local thugs, including a man named Andre Katz. Andre Katz was a, a, a car thief, a very, very good car thief. And uh, he was supplying cars to uh, body and fender places. And he was supplying cars to uh, use car lots. And what I mean is that to body and fender places, if... Uh, you got a rush job in on a guy that just branded his, uh, his new uh, uh, Porsche. Well, rather than wait for Porsche to send him the parts, there were two ways. Order a Porsche that you'd be stolen, or be really lazy and order a Porsche that color to be stolen and just replace the parts, taking the dented parts off and putting the new parts on and polishing it. Voila, you cut out the parts and you made triple the profit on him. That was Andre Katz. Like I said, he was, he was very good at it. The operation was fairly simple. They would have around 20 thieves out at night, where visibility was low, and would grab as many cars as they could. They were so sneaky, they sometimes even got the help of the local law enforcement. A uh, policeman could run a search on a car. Uh, if they had gotten a license plate of a steel gray uh, Porsche, I wanted to know where it was, so what I had to do was get their friendly police officer to run it. He would tell them where the car was located, and they would be able to go out that night and steal it. Uh, this became such a lucrative business. I mean, they, they were doing 
better than General Motors. The car stealing ring was going extremely well, and so DeMeo decided to expand his reach into other industries. One in particular caught his attention. Pornography is, as you, I'm sure you know, is one of the best money makers. It's part of, you know, that there is one way or the other, and, and there were, you know, a lot of methods to um, distribute it, which he was an expert in, and I'm sure had avenues of doing so and creating it. In the 1970s, pornography was illegal. Not only that, but most of the family bosses, including Paul Castellano, frowned upon it. But DeMeo decided it was too good an opportunity to pass up, and his own boss, Gadji, turned a blind eye for one simple reason. Roy was bringing in too much money. It would be speculation that, that Roy was a ter- terrific earner and did, did so with some discretion and deniability. And I would think that would, again, I'm speculating, would be the, probably the most significant reason. By 1973, Roy DeMeo was 32 and was one of the Gambino family's top earners. But things were about to pivot, and Roy was about to find himself in a very different business. One of DeMeo's business associates, Paul Rothenberg, was arrested. With Rothenberg under pressure, DeMeo thought he might put the rest of the crew at risk. So in July 1973, DeMeo set up a meeting with Rothenberg at a local restaurant under false pretenses, but they didn't make it to dinner. Instead, DeMeo took Rothenberg into the alley nearby. It was DeMeo's first kill, and so when another conflict came up, he didn't hesitate to take drastic steps. Andre Katz, one of the car thieves who would deliver the parts to the gang, got into trouble with the police. Andre got pinched for narcotics. And they were afraid, like everything else, was uh, he would rat out to the police rather than take a a chance of getting uh, convicted of narcotics possession on it. And uh, therefore, uh, he could tie uh, Chris Harvey Rosenberg into the car, stolen car operation, which could tie him into Roy DeMeo. And they were asking him to finger or identify the individuals for whom he was working, is what it boils down to. So that was a perfectly viable case, as long as Andre Katz can cooperate and testify. So after having a, a meeting with uh, Roy and his capo, Nino Gaggi, Uh, The order came down was to kill Andre Katz. DeMeo and the crew hatched a plan to kill Katz. But basically, Andre Katz was a ladies' man and was basically lured to a location in order to see a young woman. The woman was a female accomplice of Rosenberg's. She called Katz, asking for a date. Katz drove across town to her home to pick her up. But she wasn't the one waiting for him. The DeMeo crew was. But as he pulled up, he was grabbed by them, and they put a noose around his head and dragged him into a car. Katz was thrown into the trunk of a car, forcefully blindfolded and driven across town to Pantry Pride Meat Market, a butcher's shop in the heart of Queens. When his blindfold was taken off, he was alone in a slaughterhouse. Roy had once been a butcher's apprentice, 
and the training was about to come in handy. The next morning, a homeless man was rifling through the butcher shop's bins when he came across a bin full of what appeared to be prime cuts of meat. When he opened it up, he sees this butcher wrapped. It was, I mean, it was wrapped in butcher paper. And he opens it up, and like he thinks he discovers a leg of lamb, but actually this is a man's thigh. Now he goes running, screaming off, and calls the police. And then the next thing you see is, uh, is the headlines. This is a body, dismembered body found in the back of uh, Pantry Pride. And what a bum thought was a leg of lamb was actually uh, Andre's thigh with a tattoo on it. And uh, this caused uh, headlines, uh, dismembered body found. Uh, they placed his head, like I think, in a, a sausage press, and he looked like a flounder when they finished with him. But they ratchet, wrapped it all up in butcher paper, and it was neatly placed in the, uh, the fat disposal bin behind Pantry Prime. It was a macabre crime scene at the butchery. It was clear that this was no ordinary murder. Before long, Detectives identified the victim and knew that he had ties to the mob. Detective Wendling and the others present realized that this was likely a mafia hit, but they didn't know who was behind it. Whoever it was had an appetite for the gruesome. Unfortunately, uh, when you work in homicide, it, it tends, you tend to uh, uh, become a little numb to this, uh, this way of killing a man. And uh, like I said, he was dismembered, neatly cut up. Uh, the intestines and everything was disposed of. And uh, when we brought the medical examiner in to, to see the body, to see the parts, it was a young girl and uh, she com completely com became quite upset and almost uh, fainted at the sight of this. You know? And here we are joking around saying, maybe we'll go for uh, Chinese food after this. And, uh, that that was our day of dealing with the, the reality of what we were actually seeing. But again, we knew this involved organized crime and it definitely aroused the attention of our boss. Have, could they have done other homicides like this? At the time, the police were not terribly interested in investigating into Katz's murder. No witnesses came forward. No incriminating evidence was found. Detective Wendling says the reason was because Katz was the wrong kind of victim, a criminal. As my career grew in the police department, one thing you come to realize, uh, if a civilian gets killed, there's an outcrying of the public, uh, find a murderer. But when an organized crime figure is killed, there is not that much outcry. There's not that much interest that the other detectives place. And I viewed this as a tremendous weakness. Roy DeMeo and his crew had dealt with cats in a very public way and got away with it. And now the DeMeo crew developed a method for making people disappear. Dismemberment was rarely used by the mafia, but for the DeMeo crew, it became their signature. They knew a lot about dismembering bodies and disposing of bodies. Uh, I had said earlier that uh, Roy DeMeo became... Uh, what well, Henry Ford was to uh, building automobiles and the mass production. Well, Roy did that for murder. Murder for money, for hire. Joe Coffey is a former homicide detective with the NYPD. 
Now behind the Gemini lines, there was an apartment by rented, by rented by a guy named Joseph Guglielmo. That apartment was used for all sorts of criminal activity, not the least of which was homicide. And this is the location where they cut the bodies up. They would lure their victims to the place and they would bring them in. In some cases, depending on who the victim was and what the reason for the killing was, they would dispose of them. Now, in one case, they brought a guy in and stabbed him right in the heart with, a, with an ice pick as soon as he walked in the door and stopped his heart immediately. They brought him into the bathroom, put him in the tub. They cut his body. First of all, they, they hung him up from the shower rod upside down and drained the blood out of him. Then they cut the body up and put all the parts in a hefty bag, a hefty garbage bag, and they dumped that body into the Atlantic Ocean was never found. That was Paul Castellano's son-in-law. Okay? On that particular occasion, after they got done cutting the body up and draining the blood out of it in the bathtub, they all sat down with Roy DeMeo and they ordered a pizza and they were eating the pizza with bloody hands. That's how despicable these people were. The quick and methodical method of murder that the crew created quickly became known as the Gemini Method because most of their victims were killed at the hangout. It also became informally known as the murder machine. They would cut the body up, dismember the body, neatly wrap the body, and the parts were placed in dumpsters that were scheduled for immediate pickup that night to be dumped at the Fountain Avenue Pound. And the Fountain Avenue dump was, uh, had a special area designated for meat byproducts. And the reason why is that it was designated meat byproducts because they didn't want rat infestation to start. And it had to be covered immediately with dirt. So as the truck pulled up and he would dump all the produce and also the, the dumpster that the body was placed in was the last dumpster. So when it was dumped, it was covered immediately by all the other produce in the garbage truck. And then the bulldozers covered everything. And the unique thing, by placing these bodies in the, in the Fountain Avenue dump, uh, it made it virtually impossible for you to uh, search out with dogs because uh, dogs only sniff dead protein. And for that fact, they would be going wild in the dump. They, they find dead protein everywhere. And it would be almost impossible to do it without having to dig up half the dump. And then, according to the experts, they don't think the body would last more than six months in that kind of heat. And uh, basically, we were ruled out digging it up. The Fountain Avenue dump by the Rockaways was the perfect hiding place for rotting meat. It was enormous and filled with everyone's garbage. Well, it was the, all of the garbage in Brooklyn and Queens went to that dump. So if you dump something there, you're not going to find it ever, ever, ever. So that's why they used it. Plus, they had uh, protection by the people who worked there, the garbage sanitation department, where they paid off. Now, the sanitation department is almost 100% Italian, so they're only cahoots. So they could do anything they wanted. They owned the dump. In just months, DeMeo had turned murder into a sadistic ritual. Now, there was no need to do this. This was just, uh, how would you say, vicious evilness. I mean, mob hits normally aren't done that way. Why go to that length when they could just put a bullet in his head and dump him in the ocean? They did it just to be vicious. And that was the Mayo's doing because he was a psycho. 
Roy would beg to differ. Murder was lucrative. Killing now became a side business with the DeMeo crew. Uh, after Andre Katz and the disposal of this, uh, Roy decided to uh, expand the business into killing. Not just killing enemies, but now killing for the families. So now, if Roy can do some killings for the families, uh, let's say a soldier had, and one family has an argument with another soldier, well, he can't likely go out and kill them because they're born in the same family. But if he's that pissed off about him, he'll go to Roy. And Roy whack him out of the eye. He'll just invite him to a party, and that would be the last time you see him. So that's what Roy did. He expanded the murder. DeMeo could now do bigger and bigger deals. He made his biggest deal when he aligned with the Westies, an Irish-American gang that ran the west side of Manhattan. The Westies would provide 10% of all profits to the Gambinos, while the Gambinos would provide intel and murder contracts. And the person who carried out those contracts... He'd take in any contract. Like I said, he took a contract in for the Westies, which made them boss of the West Side. So in actuality, the Westies were kicking money up to Roy, and Roy was kicking money up to Nino. The Westies' alliance earned DeMeo his button. He was finally a made man. And as a made man, he could afford to take some liberties within the Mafia rules. DeMeo was placed officially in charge of the alliance, as long as he didn't get involved in any drug rings. Drugs were frowned upon by Paul Castellano, as they tended to attract law enforcement. But the DeMeo crew instead got deep into the world of cocaine. Most of the operations were through Chris Rosenberg's connections. Soon they would discover that they should have listened to their capo. In early 1979, Rosenberg went to Florida to buy cocaine off a group of Cubans. Chris Rosenberg, like I said, he looked at Roy as a father. Chris Rosenberg assumed Roy's name. Anywhere he went, when he signed into a hotel, he called himself Chris DeMeo. And originally they had their contact down there was a Cuban, but the Cuban was de dealing with a Colombian. So Chris, in his infinite wisdom, decided to do away with the Cuban, deal directly with the Colombian, and we're gonna purchase some cocaine, we're all gonna be happy. I'm connected in organized crime, my name is Chris DeMeo. Him being the entrepreneur that he is, says, hey, I'm not gonna pay them, I'm gonna kill them. And he kills them. He winds up killing three people. The dealer, the guy's brother-in-law, and I think he brought his son up with him. And they're all Colombians. When Roy found out this, he says, you don't kill Colombians. Colombians will go to war with anybody. DeMeo and his bosses were both outraged by Rosenberg's actions. Even more so, Rosenberg had associated himself with DeMeo specifically. He says, they're going to send an army up here, and he says, they're going to kill you. And they said, what name did you use? And he says, I went by Chris DeMeo. Well, he says, my God, my family's dead. They're going to come up here and kill my whole family. DeMeo became paranoid that the Colombians might come to kill him. It was then that DeMeo made a terrible mistake, the public murder of an innocent teenager. 
DeMeo came home one day to find a strange car parked outside his door. He immediately thought it was a Colombian assassin and made chase. Roy was so nervous about it that a poor electrolux salesman going around to the houses in Mississippi comes up to his house to sell him a vacuum cleaner. Roy thinks he's a Colombian hitman. Calls up uh, Joey and, and, and Anthony, tells him, speed out here, I got a Colombian hit team going to kill me. But it wasn't an assassin. It was Dominic Regucci, a door-to-door salesman trying to make money for college. They chased this poor individual halfway across Long Island on Route 110, uh, 4.30 in the afternoon. Everybody's coming home from work. Get out in a combat shootout and kill this guy and then disappear. We had witnesses, if these ain't cops, these are professional killers. He says, because they were in a combat crouch, they knew just how to hold a gun, and they shot this kid who's pleading for his life. Gadji was already angry about Rosenberg's murders, which risked an all-out war between the Colombians and the Gambinos. But Raguchi's death pushed it too far. The Colombians demanded a scalp. Someone had to die. The Gambino bosses knew who it had to be, the person responsible, DeMeo's friend, Chris Rosenberg. DeMeo could not make the body just disappear as usual. He had to show the Colombians that he had killed Rosenberg on their behalf. So he decides Chris has to go. Naturally, they go to a meeting. He shoots Chris. They stab Chris. And Chris can't be dismembered. Chris has to be left, so it's going to make front page headlines. So Henry says, uh, I'll get out my machine gun, which at that time you could buy a Thompson machine gun as a replica. And if you knew a, uh, a person that can work on it, a gunsmith, he could turn it into a regular Thompson. And apparently that's what they did. They parked him on Floyd Bennett Field, uh, sat him in his car, put a nine millimeter between his legs and the machine gun in the car. And yes, it did. It made front page headlines, body found, man, machine gunned on Floyd Bennett Field with nine millimeter between his legs. And this was enough to appease the Colombians for not sending up a, a hit team to retaliate for the murder of those three Colombians. Rosenberg had been his right-hand man, and DeMeo was temporarily unsettled. But business was business, and soon DeMeo and the crew returned to the swing of things. Though DeMeo was still defying Paul Castellano by both dealing drugs and the drug deal gone bad, it was Rosenberg who had been ordered taken out, not himself. He remained popular because of his specialist skills. Yeah, well, Roy wasn't going to get killed because, uh, see, Paulie needed his guns, and Roy DeMeo and his men were very, very well respected. And this added power to Paulie. So that's how important uh, Roy DeMeo was to Paulie. But as Mafia boss reigns go, Castellano wouldn't last forever. And so neither would DeMeo. In the next episode, though the police were still perplexed about the hundreds of disappearances, they were starting to get some clues as to what was happening. And what happened in the next six months to a year was an extraordinary 
combination of motivated investigators, some of whom you know I never would have met under any other circumstances, many of them local investigators, um, who felt strongly that the individuals in the crew had evaded responsibility for truly heinous acts, and they were looking for some means and mechanism of perhaps drawing it all together. But with bribery rampant, the Mafia was able to buy themselves out of any crimes that could be pinned on them. I don't know that it's fair. I think in many ways the DeMeo crew was successful in overcoming the criminal justice system in the States. That case alone was worthy of every effort that DeMeo crew could bring to bear to, to frustrate the system. When one person turned rat and then another, DeMeo found himself in trouble when his bosses thought the next rat might be him. They realized we were getting close to him, to DeMeo, and they thought that we were able to arrest him and incarcerate him and turn him into an informant. He would have brought the whole empire down. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Ben Hosley, Rachel Jacobs, Casey Georgie, and Karen Bevan, and by Pascal Hughes for World Media Rights. We had additional production help from World Media Rights by Gerald Zibengwa and James Tyndale. David McNabb is the series' creative director, and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Thanks to ZipRecruiter and Upstart for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.